0: you are here, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, the case of those who have fallen away, Hebrews chapter 6. So let's open our Bibles there. Once you have it, if you're able to stand with us, stand for the reading of God's Word if you would. Hebrews 6, we're picking, up, picking it up at verse 4 and reading to verse 12. Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. Or in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, 6-6, six, six, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed and ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, verse 10, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. You can have a seat. Let's pray a prayer together. Father, thank you for your living word. A few chapters ago, we learned that it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from your sight. Everything is open and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. And the one to whom we must give an account is our great high priest who ran the race, finished the work, is our great advocate on high, is cheering us on, is empowering us to run the race and finish well. And we have a lot of things that come at us, Lord, and a lot of temptations that would vie for our attention. And so I pray that we would not be sluggish in our faith, that we would be diligent, that we would run with endurance the race marked out before us as we fix or refix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May you be glorified in the time we have ahead of us. Give us understanding and application to your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Before you tonight is probably one of the hardest texts that theologians and other students of the Bible have wrestled with over the years, at least in the New Testament. It has brought a host of uh, controversy in the sense that there are people who take different positions. This is a, a place in scripture that's brought out questions about eternal security can a believer lose their salvation? Who is this group that's being addressed? And how could it be that it would be impossible to renew any group to repentance, whoever they may be? Some years ago, I was in the church parking lot at a church in Orange, and a wide-eyed young man came up to me and my friend. We were both young pastors. And he said, I think I've lost my salvation. I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and we said, what happened? What happened? Oh, what's going on? And he said, I heard a sermon in Hebrews chapter six, and I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so we tried to dig a little and find out exactly what was going on. And he had heard someone preach on Hebrews six, conclude that the group uh, impossible to renew to repentance again was those who had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit about that. And he thought he had committed the sin And his soul was destined to doom because he couldn't be renewed again to repentance because it was impossible. And so it's all over. Game over. (laughs) What do we do now? And we're like, we don't know. (laughs) No, just kidding. We didn't do that. We didn't say, rot's a ruck. See you later, you know. So we began to Kind of just dig down a little bit. And, you know, he did one of those things where I, I had a thought enter my mind, and I think it was blasphemous against the Holy Spirit. And Am I doomed? And one of the things that you'll often hear pastors and Bible commentators say is if you're concerned about it, you probably haven't committed that sin. I'm not even sure that sin can can be committed by believers right now. I think it was relegated to the first century where Pharisees were attributing the delivering power of the Christ to Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so that's kind of a side note for tonight. But I will tell you that this text has caused many to lose sleep at night. It's caused some division. It's caused deep questions And you could probably read a myriad of commentaries on this and you may not get a consensus on it and you may be more confused after you read them. And so the question is, how do we understand uh, such a a section of scripture? Well, I've called this the case of those who have fallen away. What I'd like to do is read the first couple of uh, Bible uh, verses together. We'll move a little bit slowly. I'm gonna ask you to put on your thinking caps tonight. We'll dig a little bit deeper into some things that might stretch your brain a little bit, but that's okay. Let's just focus on the first three verses. Notice the writer says this, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, whenever you're reading a text of scripture, one of the basics of Bible interpretation is to know who the original audience was. The original audience of the letter to the Hebrews was likely a early group of Jewish believers who had professed faith in Christ. Many commentators believe that they dwelt in Rome in a small little church in Rome. Persecution was building in the Roman world and it was building towards Jewish people who had professed faith in Christ and were experiencing maybe being disowned by their family, excommunicated from business with friends, because they had claimed Jesus as Messiah, and that wasn't necessarily popular in a lot of circles. So they found themselves in a tough spot. At this point in history, I think the consensus of scholarship is that Hebrews is written in the 60s, so the temple in Jerusalem still stands, animal sacrifices are still going on, the whole system of the feast days, Sacrifices and you name it are still happening. Animals are dying, blood is being shed, and Jewish uh, let's just say those who practice Judaism are relying upon that system to find some sort of covering for their sin or some sort of uh, being made right again with God through the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, etc. That's the original audience to whom the writer writes. Now, he writes five things about this group that we need to mark. In the case of those who have, number one, they were once enlightened. Number two, they had tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, they had become, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Number four, they had tasted the good word of God. And number five, The powers of the age to come. They had tasted that as well. So you can see some significant things about this group of people. If you just read on the surface those descriptions of this group of people, it would be hard to deny that they're believers. I mean, those five descriptions would probably describe most of us who are believers in the room, and we would all be rejoicing in those things. So let's talk about three major views, and we'll come back to those five things in a second. So there are three major views as to who this group is or who the writer is talking about. Number one, some believe this is hypothetical. If you're taking notes, I'm gonna give you three groups to write down for your notes. The first view is a hypothetical group. You say, what does hypothetical mean, Pastor Michael? It means theoretical or imaginary. This group argues that this is a situation that has never existed, therefore, a warning against a sin like this is impossible to commit. They believe it's just simply a hypothetical, what if warning, and it can't really be committed. And it's based upon, partly upon, the New King James and King James and other uh, uh, modern versions that add the word if to verse six, if they fall away. But in the original Greek, if you look at the original language of the New Testament, the word if is not there. The New American Standard probably is the best rendering of it, and it says, and then have fallen away. So, this first group might say, well, it's an if situation, it's hypothetical, and it's a warning to keep Christians from apostatizing or falling away, but it's, it really couldn't happen. It's imaginary. I don't know why a writer is warning people about something that can't happen. Do you? <laughs> I mean, that's just a question I would ask. If it's just simply hypothetical, if you can't commit the sin, then why has the writer spent so much time on people who fall away? And for that matter, why are there other verses in the New Testament about the danger of apostasy, right? It doesn't make any sense. If the, if the warning's not real, then why, why put pen and ink to it? Number two, view. This is an actual group of people You could say hypothetical, actual, number two. And this would fit with a camp called those who are in the Arminian and possibly even in the Lutheran camp. They say those who fall away are actual, bona fide Christians who have once been saved and abandoned the faith they once held in Christ. If you walk away from Christ, then... Since Christ is salvation, they would argue, you walk away from your salvation. And some of you have heard the terms Calvinism and Arminianism. Have you guys all heard those terms before? So in Calvinism, one of the major tenets of it is the perseverance of the saints. All the elect, they say, will be saved and they will persevere. Those who are in the Arminian camp, and this is basically from a, a guy back in the 16th century who was arguing back and forth with the other camp, uh, he, th- this view just basically says, believers can apostasize, which is not a Italian pasta dish. It actually means you could walk away. And they would probably say something like this. They would say... This is not a a genuine struggle with sin or sometimes struggling with some forms of hypocrisy. This is a person who decides that they no longer want to follow Christ and even becomes an enemy of the gospel. And certainly we can see that there's cases in the scripture. We have Demas in 2 Timothy 4 who was in love with the world And he had abandoned his faith. We have, you know, uh, cases like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, who was, uh, you know, called the great power of God and he believed and was baptized, but the evidence is that his heart was wrong and he may not have had saving faith. And then the third group is this is an apparent. group of people. This would be the Calvinist group. This third view would hold that those who fall away uh, were or are not true believers. They were never really Christians. They're the apparent Christians. Hypothetical, actual, apparent. Number three, and these are people, men and women, who only appear to be Christians. They've been uh, thoroughly exposed to the gospel. They've made perhaps a profession of faith. They've been received into the fellowship of God's people. However, at some later point, they abandoned that profession, perhaps even became opponents of Christ, but they were never truly born again. And one of the faces that would come to our minds immediately of a person like this would be Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, was with the apostles. He was one of the twelve. But Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. And he said of Judas it would would have been better for him had he never been born. Now Judas was the ultimate actor. He was the ultimate hupakritas. We talked about this on Sunday. He was the ultimate. He was playing a role. But he was never committed to the Lord. And This third group would be something like that, a a phony. Let's look at the five things that we've learned about this group. Five descriptive clauses. They had once been enlightened. What does that mean? Photizo is the Greek word. It means that the light of the gospel had shined upon them. They knew the gospel. They had knowledge of the one who is the light of the world. They had the light of the gospel uh, this had shined upon them. There's no doubt they had the full knowledge of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, etc. They had tasted the heavenly gift. I'm moving through the first verses we've read together. Tasting of the heavenly gift could be the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of salvation or specifically the gift of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So the Holy Spirit will be mentioned next. So they say uh, this would be a group of people who have tasted the heavenly gift in the sense that they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now some people argue that the word taste here is used in Matthew 27 when Jesus tasted the sour wine which was supposed to deaden your pain but he didn't take it in. And they say that These people are simply those who have tasted, almost like maybe licking on a lollipop. They tasted it, but they never consumed it. Like Jesus tasted the sour wine, but didn't drink it. They've had a taste of these things, but never fully consumed the things of God. And this would be in the camp of those who think these are apparent Christians. Camp number three. And so, but the word is also used in Hebrews 2.9. Just flip over a few pages in your Bible, and you'll see... It talks of Jesus who was made a little, uh, for a little while, lower than the angels. Hebrews 2 9, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might do what? Taste death for everyone. That's the same Greek word. And if you look a little bit harder at the uses of this word, it does mean to eat, it can mean to consume something. It, It doesn't simply mean that you just did a little taste of something and spit it out or something like that, which I never do personally. I mean, unless it's like sauerkraut or something like that, right? I'm taking it in, baby, right? So anyway. Now, the third description of these people, it gets even stronger, is that they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. This could be in the company of others, but they have experienced the power of the Spirit, Skipping down to verse five of Hebrews six, they've tasted the good word of God. Notice how the word of God's called God's good word. In Jeremiah 29, 10 and thirty three fourteen. the good word of God is linked to specific promises of God. So they've tasted the word of God, the power of God, and notice this final description about them, the fifth description. Even experienced the powers of the age to come. Some would say the age to come is maybe the millennial reign of Christ. Others would say the age to come is the new covenant age or the age that Jesus ushered in when he was doing miracles on the earth. How many people saw Jesus open blind eyes, uh, heal those who were lame, unstop deaf ears, and even raise the dead? Did all those people who experienced the power of the ages to come believe Did the Pharisees believe when Lazarus was raised from the dead? No, they plotted how they could kill both Lazarus and Jesus. Just because the power of God was on display didn't convert people. And so you can see both camps here. One camp says, how could, how could someone experience those five things and not be a true Christian? And the other camp says, well, there were people who you know, experienced the power of God, right? They saw Jesus heal. They, they knew he raised the dead, and yet they still condemned him. So I don't know that we've settled the argument, even with these amazing descriptions of the power of God, the power, perhaps, of the future age, These powers may confidently be identified with the signs, wonders, and miracles mentioned in Hebrews 2 4. Judas went around with Jesus for three and a half years. How many miracles did did Judas witness? He heard Jesus preach how many times? Judas went out, they went out two by two, and he was preaching the gospel and laying hands on people, and maybe some of the heavenly power coursed through Judas. But Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father and who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare, Matthew seven twenty three, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity or practice lawlessness. So that would be a Judas-type person who experienced some of the power or seemed to have the power of God in his or her life. But Jesus says, I never knew you. And so here's the dilemma. This is R. Kent Hughes. He says, whatever we conclude about these people, we have to say they've had a full exposure to the gospel of the kingdom. Their experience parallels the privileged experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness who fell away and died in unbelief. And they're obviously in the backdrop of this entire book written to Hebrew New Testament believers. As part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had placed blood on the doorposts, eaten the Passover lamb, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night, experienced the miraculous waters of Marah, daily ate manna and heard the voice, voice of God at Mount Sinai. They experienced the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. We could go on and on. Yet their hearts were hardened in unbelief and they fell away from the living God. True, some of those who perished in the wilderness were regenerate, says Hughes, and some were not. But both were visible members of the covenant community and shared a profound mutuality of spiritual experience. Similarly, these catechized, counterfeit Christians, as Hughes puts it, of Hebrews 6, were accepted into the covenant community and likewise experienced some of the spiritual realities but fell away. And then he says, uh, true believers will never ultimately abandon Christ or his people. 1 John 2.19 says, they, they departed from us because they were never really of us. And so you can kind of see where if you're in the camp of one can lose their salvation or if you're in the eternal security camp or maybe you find yourself somewhere in between, you could see how both camps have kind of you know, locked on to their reasons of what they believe. And, and it, it would be easy for any of us to kind of presuppose or impose what we already believe on a text like this. Sometimes we have a tough time reading texts just you know, for what they say because we already have come to some conclusions in our theology, so here's what it says about this group, and this is probably the prickly of all the prickly verses, uh, and it's verse six. These folks, and then have fallen away, and remember, it's not an if, it's not a what if, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves. And I believe the tense is uh, present, so it's, they keep on crucifying the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And this is what has caused many people to scratch their heads, get into debates, and lose sleep. How could it be impossible to renew someone to repentance. Whatever camp you're in, this is a problem. Because if you're in the camp that says you can lose your salvation, let's just say that you're in that camp. You believe that someone could walk away from their faith. Well, then apparently they can't come back. But wouldn't we argue that there's some people that did come back? Like, let's take the story of the prodigal son. How about David when he committed the sin and hid it for a year and then returned to the Lord. And then the book of James says something that I believe we've got to wrestle with and it's the end of James chapter five and since you're just really close to the book of James, let's turn there. It's one book to your right. And I want you to see this in light of what looks like on the surface an impossibility. Look at James 5, the last two verses, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, James five twenty, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, whether you're in the eternal security camp or you can lose your salvation, it's a problem if someone uh, defected or apostatized or fell away, it's impossible for them to ever return. And maybe the Calvinist camp would say, well, they were always non-elect and that's why they fell away. But the, the impossibility language still sits there. So back to the book of Hebrews. I told you your brain was gonna be stretched a little bit tonight. What do we make of this? What do we make of the prodigal son? What do we make of James chapter five? People who stray from the truth, we're supposed to pursue them. I heard one teacher say that this is perhaps hyperbole. The word impossible is hyperbole. What does that mean? Hyperbole is a word that means extreme language to make a point. And so he he takes us to this text. He says, uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus discusses the commandments with him. And he says, I've kept them all. What am I still lacking? He says, well, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. And the rich young ruler's face fell because he had great wealth. And he walked away from Jesus dejectedly. And Jesus said, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? This is Luke 18, 27. Jesus said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. Now, I like the sound of that, but I'm not sure that that's what the writer of Hebrews means when he uses the word impossible. <laughs> Am I supposed to link the rich young ruler story with what the writer of Hebrews is saying and somehow find solace in, well, maybe it's impossible, but maybe it's just hyperbole. and that's, He doesn't really mean it's totally impossible. He just means it's impossible with people. I don't know. I I don't know that that's the right answer. Well, what is the right answer? I mean, how could it be impossible for someone to fall away and not be renewed again to repentance? Well, some have argued that this group is a group that's committed the unpardonable sin. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't think the unpardonable sin can be committed just by any old person. Uh, Like I told you that story of the young man with the white eyes in the parking lot. I think that that sin was the Pharisees attributing Jesus's power to deliver from a demonic power to Beelzebub. And since they attributed his power to the devil, they committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But is that what's going on with these people? Because they fell away because of persecution or pressure or that kind of thing? And what about the prodigal son? What about, uh, you know, people in practical experience? You may know, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you fell away at some point in your life and you have returned to the Lord. But if you were in the camp that we said it's impossible for you to return, then you wouldn't be here. (laughs) So how could it be impossible? So it it definitely, you can see why this has caused an issue. Uh, Let me just see if I can walk this out for you. And I got some things that hit my brain this morning. And I had one of those aha moments. And I want to tell you what I think is going on here. I think what's going on here is that these Jewish Christians in the first century are a specific, special circumstance. I do believe that there's application for today, but let's just take the original audience, the temple still standing. So let's say that you're a first century Jew. You come into a a Jewish Christian context. you, You become a believer. You profess Jesus as Messiah. And let's say that your family begins to disown you. And people start chirping in your ear that Jesus can't be the Messiah because of this scripture or that scripture. And Oh, and by the way, we don't want you attending this synagogue anymore, and on and on it goes. So let's just say that you decide, you know what, I can't take this anymore. This is too much pressure. And this happens to people who come out of the cults, people who have been in other world religions. And let's say that you went back to the temple and you started offering sacrifices again uh, to fit in or because of the pressure or the persecution. What would you be saying? You'd be saying, I'm going back to the shadows instead of the substance I'm going back to a covenant that is obsolete because the old covenant has been supplanted by the new covenant. That's Hebrews 8, I think it's verse 3 or 13. The old covenant is obsolete. The shadows have been fulfilled by the substance. The substance is Christ. It would be like you have a photograph of your family on your desk at work. Your wife walks in with your child and you're kissing the photo Oh, I love you, baby. And your your wife in the flesh is standing right there. The photo's nice, but her in real life is better. Amen? Amen. The old covenant has been supplanted by the new, it is now obsolete. Why go back to the photo when the real has come? Why go back to the shadows when the substance has come? And I think that this is confirmed by language in verse six. I want you to look at it with me and think with me. How could someone, look at the end of verse six, crucify to themselves the Son of God? Let me ask you, how would that be possible that I could again crucify Jesus, present tense, over and over and over again? How could I do that? I believe the only way that that could be done is if I was a first century Jew going back to things that were picturing the crucifixion that had now been fulfilled. Everybody with me? How else could I re-crucify the Christ and put him to open shame? See, if I was going back to the shadows and back to the old covenant system of the blood of bulls and goats, then I would be dishonoring the fulfillment of those types and shadows. Everybody with me? Shake your head so I know you're kind of with me. Now, I want to show you something in Hebrews chapter 10. Flip over there. This warning passage is one of five in the book of Hebrews. So, this isn't the only warning passage. And I believe. Hebrews 6 is linked with the other warning passages. Let's take a look at Hebrews and let's look at verse 4 and then we'll drop down in that chapter. Let's look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, Hebrews 10 3, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do what? Take away sin. Y'all see the word there? It's impossible just mark that. Therefore, when he comes into the world, this is the Messiah, Jesus, he says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you did not desire, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Keep reading. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What your Bible say? Once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And here's the frosting. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How then could it be that someone would go back to that system of the sacrifices to the blood of bulls and goats and move from the fulfillment to the shadow? From the op- from the Fulfillment or the greater uh, covenant to the obsolete one. That's going backwards. And I believe that that is the way one puts Christ to open shame. They shame the Christ who's fulfilled the imagery by going back to that which has been fulfilled. Everybody with me? I believe that's what's going on here. This is my personal view, my take on it but I think that you can see it has merit. Now, if you uh, drop down and you look at, there's a lot I could say in chapter 10, but we'll, we'll this, this is a future study. I want you to drop down to verse 24. So the writer's using these verses that, uh, he writes these verses that we used a lot during COVID. Let us consider, brethren, how to stimulate one another to, to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Keep reading. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant or the new covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said vengeance is mine, I will repay again and again, the Lord will judge his people. He says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the former days when after being what? Enlightened, write down Hebrews 6, 4, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. I think you can see some connections to Hebrews chapter six. What's the writer doing? I think this is what's probably happening. I think that there were some people in the Hebrew Roman church who had defected, and others were being tempted to do so. Probably it was a minority of people, and the writer's saying, if you do that, If you go back to that system, it's impossible for that system to produce the forgiveness that you need. It will do nothing for you. I don't know that this keeps uh, one from returning to the Lord, even if someone fell away or backslid. I think you gotta keep in mind the original audience, and I think that will help us all. Now, is this a very real situation for us modern folks who sit here in a church on a Wednesday night? Could we we do this? Could we backslide into trusting something other than Jesus Christ for our salvation? I think it's possible. I brought up a couple scenarios where maybe someone comes out of a world religion or a cult, and there's a lot of pressure to go back to that. Maybe they don't believe that anymore, But they find themselves pressed back into that environment. That's possible. Um, There are some systems, you know, that may uh, smack of this, where you know the the ideas that are conveyed uh, seem to indicate some of this stuff that you know maybe there's a a thinking that this has to happen again and again. When it happened once for all, it doesn't need to be repeated. Jesus paid for your salvation in full. Amen? Amen? At the cross. Now here's the metaphor the writer uses to kind of wrap it up. For ground that drinks the rain, how many of you have said, okay, it's good that we've had rain, but enough is enough. I was out in my backyard, and uh, we have one side of our house, we, we finally put some concrete and drains in, uh, but it's, it, the way that the house is just sitting it's never drained properly, so we always have this one side of the house that is always a problem. The water starts to creep up pretty high in the house, and so I have this little pump, and this pump's a little champ, and I put it somewhere, and whir, 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 it starts, you know, pushing the water to some drains that are actually draining, and it's wonderful. Well, last night, I uh, I heard that my pump was struggling, and I came to lay hands on it, <laughs> and. And it wasn't pumping the water. And I'm out here in these boots and shorts and my feet are cold. And If you would have seen me, you would have said, not only is it an ugly picture, but Pastor Michael is not sounding too spiritual right now. Because I was talking to the pump and, what's going on? You know how you want, you don't want people to hear you, but you kind of want people to hear you. You want them to share in your struggle. I don't know what you got to do. It's just pump and not working, and I don't want to take it apart right now. I'm cold, and it's and it's raining, and, and that's pretty much what I did. And why did I tell that story? Uh, oh, anyway, so finally in the morning, I I figured out there was a rock in it, and the pump got going. Praise the Lord. Anyway, here's the point: the rain comes down. And it's a picture of the blessing of God. For ground that drinks the rain, and of course the ground's pretty saturated right now, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, you could say cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So soil number one is good soil. It's been tilled. Water comes down on it, seeds there, and it produces a crop. Simply put, But if it yields thorns and thistles, taking us all the way back to Genesis 3 and the language of the curse, it says, if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. Close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The first uh, picture of the soil rain hits it, produces a crop. Second soil, not so good only thorns and thistles. When Jesus told the parable of the soils or the sower, he said these words, Mark four sixteen and 17. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no firm root in themselves, Mark four 16, 17. They're only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately they fall away. The parable of the sower of the soils, I believe, explains a lot of what happens when the word of God goes out. I want you to think of an evangelistic crusade. Greg Laurie preaches to, let's say, 50,000 people. People start streaming down. Old footage of Billy Graham crusades. Here comes all this mass of humanity. They're all on the field. The gospel's been preached. The, the Uh, songs have been sung about the Christ. The Holy Spirit's moving in people's lives. People have made professions of faith. But what happens? Some of the ground seems genuine and others of the ground doesn't produce anything. Sometimes people pray a sinner's prayer and they're nowhere to be found. You may have friends like this who they were once even very active. Maybe they were... Uh, witnessing to others. that Maybe they led others to Christ, baptized people, served communion, and they're nowhere to be found. How do we explain that? And could they come back? <laughs> I think they could, but we can anchor some of our thoughts in the parable of the sower. Don't have time to get into that. Mark 4, if you want to go back and read that. All right, so here we are. We've got the the people, the different views, the image here. But now the writer says something very pastoral, and I want to definitely give you this because I think this will help. But beloved, he says, the loved people of God, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Amen? (laughs) I feel like the weight gets lifted off of our chest a little bit. And things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Now, some who hold the hypothetical view say this backs their view. But the writer is basically saying this. I'm convinced of better of you, things that accompany what? Salvation. Which means that there are going to be things, if you're truly saved, fruit will come out of your life. Amen? Amen? And what will happen is salvation will produce, saving faith will produce works that go with it. Grace is the root. Good works are the fruit. Right? We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. But if you are saved, there will be things that accompany your salvation. Because faith without works is dead. So, The writer says, I've been seeing what many of you guys do. And these are things that demonstrate to me that you're saved. For God is not unjust, praise God, that means he is just. So as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, God doesn't forget what you've done in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. It's easy to become weary it's easy in a marathon to get tired, lose your focus, and just say, I'm done. Especially when you watch people maybe that you respected walk away from the faith. You know, maybe there's some people that were once very zealous and now they're nowhere to be found. You've tried to hang in there, you've tried to be faithful. Does God know what I've been through, what I've done? what I've tried to demonstrate over the years, yes, God is just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Amen. Amen. So don't grow weary. And we desire that each one of you, I want you to make this your own tonight, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That'll be the, uh, Hoping the anchor of our soul is for next time. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How many of you have read about the sluggard uh, in the book of Proverbs? You know what the sluggard does? Alarm clock goes off and he goes, <laughs> it's too bright, <laughs> turn the light out. Now, I do that sometimes, but I don't stay in bed forever. (laughs) The sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. I think he's going to eat me. The sluggard has a lawn that hasn't been mowed since 1974. (laughs) There are people in cars and things hidden. You just say, 101 Sluggard Lane. I hope you're not a sluggard. You say, what in the world is a sluggard? It's someone who's sluggish. <laughs> I know that's deep. And you gotta say it with a southern twang. He's a sluggard. When it comes to your walk with the Lord, sluggishness is not the answer. One writer says a lazy life can be an indication of a graceless life. Now, true believers sometimes will lose some passion, right? We've all been there. Sometimes we get our eyes off what we should be doing. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we are frustrated. Sometimes we got answers or questions that maybe we don't get answered and we don't know what to do. And the writer is saying, Look, I know what you guys are facing, but being sluggish is not the answer. Burying your head in the, in the sand is not the answer. Flip over to Hebrews 12 and we're done. Don't drop back. Don't drop out of the race. Finish strong. Amen? It's not how you start. It's how you finish. This is Hebrews 12 and it says this. Therefore, verse one. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, as we consider our walk with you and we consider walking in the spirit, we wrestle with a lot of different things in this life. Some of them have to do with questions. Some of them have to do with difficult Circumstances sometimes are things we see in our own heart. Sometimes they're frustrations with other people. Sometimes they're struggles with other Christians. And there are many things that can cause us to lose heart, Lord, and, and maybe even shrink back. But you call us to be vigilant and diligent and to keep pressing on towards the goal. I believe that we are secure in Jesus, that he who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ. I believe there's a lot of wonderful promises for the believer that we can rest in Jesus, that we can know that we belong to him and he will, he has sealed us into the day of redemption. Yet I believe this Hebrews passage is a real warning against falling away. A real warning about going back to things that cannot deliver. A real warning about wasting our time on things that will not last, Lord. So give us the understanding that we need. I believe this room is filled with people who are passionately wanting to walk with you. And I believe, Lord, that even when we hit bumps in the road or we sometimes struggle with our sin or even different things. You are faithful. Sometimes I'm faithless, but you remain faithful. Lord, would you continue to do a good work in the precious saints that are here? Maybe even in those who have had doubts or questions about this text. I pray that we would realize that probably most of the the difficulty can be anchored in this first century reality for these specific people. But I also believe it's a very real exhortation to us not to fall away, not to backslide, not to deviate, but to keep running strong and help others who have strayed to get back to where they need to be. Would you just take a moment in the spirit to let the Lord Speak to your heart about how you might respond to his word and where you may be at tonight. Maybe for you, it's gonna be a first time decision to follow Christ. Maybe it's a rededication. Maybe it's a recommitment to be on the lookout for those who have strayed from the truth. But I pray that you would and I could be still and know that he is God and that he will be exalted among the nations, and he will be exalted among his people. In Christ's name, amen.